0: Chapter 4 1920 to 1930 Overview Before the war, many people referred to the office as the Cryle Clinic, but Krile didn't want the new clinic named for an individual physician, donor, or saint. He and the others named it the Cleveland Clinic Foundation for the city they loved. Among the unique propositions of this new foundation was that twenty five per cent or more of the net income would go to an endowment to support patient care, research, education, and indigent care. The partners leased land at East Ninety third and Euclid and planned a four story building in the Italianate style. They chose this corner for very good reasons: it was a quiet, prosperous neighborhood. The city was growing in that direction. There was street parking nearby, and it was convenient to the streetcar lines. On Saturday, February 26th, 1921, Cleveland Clinic was dedicated. Dr. William Mayo gave the keynote speech. On Sunday, February 27th, there was a community open house. 1,500 people trooped through the halls. The day after, Cleveland Clinic opened its doors for business. There were 42 patients that first day, 24 physicians and 60 support personnel. Cleveland Clinic was immediately popular with patients and the community. The local medical establishment was threatened. Some felt the group practice model was dangerously progressive. There was a possibility that Lauer and Krile might lose admitting privileges in nearby hospitals. If they were truly to be their own masters, the founders needed their own hospital. The first step was to buy some nearby homes for temporary hospitalization facilities. In 1924, Cleveland Clinic built its first hospital, seven stories, 184 beds, with operating rooms on the top floor. In 1928, it was expanded to 275 beds. A combination power plant and laundry building went up. The 1920s were a golden age. Esprit de corps was high. There was an annual meeting that featured a Cleveland Clinic opera company and theater group. Doctors drove caregivers out to the country for annual picnics. In 1928, the shadows began to fall. Frank Bunce died suddenly, leaving only three of the original founders alive. Then, on May 15, 1929, explosions released poison gas that took the lives of 123 patients, visitors, and employees, a disaster that will be forever seared into the clinic's memory. Building the New Clinic In October 1919, the Founders, with the aid of Bunce's son-in-law Edward Doe, an able attorney, formed the Association Building Company to finance, erect, and equip an outpatient medical building. Organized as a for-profit corporation, this company issued common and preferred stock, most of which was bought by the founders and their families, and leased a parcel of land on the southwest corner of East 93rd Street and Euclid Avenue. Doe, often referred to as the fifth founder, was a professional administrator of great significance in the clinic's early history. He was the attorney who drew up the founding documents as specified by the four founders and who continued to serve the organization, ultimately as its president, until his untimely death in 1947. At the time of construction, the corporation acquired the land under the original building from Ralph Fuller through a 99-year lease also referred to as a perpetual lease, that began October 29, 1919. This lease eventually passed, through inheritance, into the hands of the Worthington family. The clinic eventually bought the land, as authorized by the Board of Trustees in 1970. The architectural firm of Ellerby and Company estimated that a suitable building could be constructed for $400,000. Excavation began in February 1920. The founders held a flag-raising ceremony on July 3, 1920. But construction, bedeviled by transportation strikes, continued almost right up to opening day. Although the Crowell Little Company was the contractor, cryle wrote in his autobiography that the real builder of the clinic was Lauer. He knew each brick and screw by name and was on hand early enough every morning to check the laborers as they arrived. The original clinic building, known as the T-Building in 2020, had four stories, the top three of which were built around a large central well extending from the second floor up to a rooftop skylight of tinted glass. The main waiting room, handsome with costly Rookwood terracotta tile floors and walls and with arched tiled doorways and windows, was at the bottom of the well on the second floor. The offices, examining rooms, and treatment rooms opened onto the main second-floor waiting area and onto corridors consisting of the balconies that surrounded the central well on the third and fourth floors. On the first floor were the X-ray department, the clinical laboratories, and a pharmacy. On the fourth floor were the art and photography department, editorial offices, a library, a boardroom in which the founders met, offices for administrators and bookkeepers, and Dr. Cryle's biophysics laboratory. Thus, from the beginning, there were departments representing not only the cooperative practice of medicine, but also education and research. An Extraordinary Charter From the time of Cleveland Clinic's formation as a non-profit corporation, separate from the association building company, there were no shareholders and no profits accrued to the founders. All of them received fixed salaries set by the trustees. Likewise, all other members of Cleveland Clinic's staff received salaries that were not directly dependent on the amount of income they brought into the organization. The founders had donated substantially to Cleveland Clinic's capital funds, and in the formative years they had taken the risk of personally underwriting the institution's debts in order to establish a nonprofit foundation dedicated to service to the community, medical education, and research. To ensure there would be no future deviation from these aims, the Founders empowered the Board of Trustees, if the institution failed or lost its way, to donate all assets of the organization to any local institution incorporated for promoting education, science, or art. Thus, these assets could never contribute to anyone's personal enrichment. At the first meeting of the Incorporators on February 21, 1921, the signers were elected trustees of the new institution, and provision was made for increasing the number of trustees to as many as 15 if this became desirable. Bunts, Cryle, Lauer, and Phillips were designated as founders. Cleveland Clinic's charter is an extraordinary document for its time because the scope of medical practice it defined was so liberal. The document also raised the issue of the corporate practice of medicine, much criticized at the time. The charter, granted by the state on February 5, 1921, read in part, The purpose for which said corporation is formed is to own and conduct hospitals for sick and disabled persons, and in connection therewith owning, maintaining, developing, and conducting institutions, dispensaries, laboratories, buildings, and equipment— for medical, surgical, and hygienic care and treatment of sick and disabled persons, engaging in making scientific diagnoses and clinical studies, in carrying on scientific research in and conducting public lectures on the sciences and subjects of medicine, surgery, hygiene, anatomy, and kindred science and subjects, accepting, receiving, and acquiring funds, stock, securities, and property by donations, bequests, devices, or otherwise, and using, holding, investing, reinvesting, conveying, exchanging, selling, transferring, leasing, mortgaging, pledging, and disposing of any and all funds, stocks, securities, and property so received charging and receiving compensation for services, care, treatment, and accommodations for the purpose of maintaining said hospitals not-for-profit, and the doing of all acts, exercising all powers, and assuming all obligations necessary or incident thereto. The charter was signed by the four founders. The practice of medicine in the United States has traditionally been founded on the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. A somewhat questionable and clearly self-serving economic corollary is that, to preserve this relationship, an individual patient must pay a fee for medical service directly to the doctor of his or her choice. Organized medicine has always resisted attempts to change the basis of this relationship, and the legal system has generally been supportive of this view. Similarly, lawyers have sought to preserve the lawyer-client relationship, threatened by large corporations, such as banks, that set out to sell legal services to customers through the offices of their salaried lawyers. If a corporation were allowed to do the same with the services of physicians, that is, engage in corporate medical practice, by analogy a precedent dangerous to the status of lawyers might be established. For this reason, most state legislatures, being dominated by lawyers, passed laws prohibiting the corporate practice of medicine, and most group practices, whether operating for profit or not, were obliged to include within their structure some sort of professional partnership in order to bill patients and to collect fees legally. The properties of the Mayo Clinic, for example, have always been held by a non-profit foundation. The physicians, however, were organized first as a partnership and then as an association from 1919 to 1969. The doctors received salaries from the fees paid by patients and turned over to the Mayo Foundation the excess of receipts over disbursements. This landlord-tenant relationship between the Mayo Foundation and its medical staff changed in 1969 when, as a result of corporate restructuring, all interests came under the Mayo Foundation. Thus, in most nonprofit clinics, roundabout means have been used to achieve what Cleveland Clinic accomplishes directly. The organization itself collects fees and pays the salaries of its staff. Today, with the strong trend toward group practice, the right of a nonprofit organization like the clinic to practice medicine is unlikely to be challenged. The charter of 1921 remains a source of wonder to lawyers. Fourteen members made up the clinic's professional staff in its first year. Joining Bunts and Kryle were Dr. Thomas Jones and Dr. Harry Sloan in surgery. Lauer was joined by Dr. Thomas Shoup in urology. With Phillips in internal medicine were Dr. Henry John, Dr. Oliver Kimball, and Dr. John Tucker. Henry John was also head of the clinical laboratories. Dr. Justin Waugh was the otolaryngologist, Dr. Bernard Nichols and Dr. W. F. Smeltzer were radiologists, and Dr. Hugo Frick was the biophysicist. Krile was elected the first president of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, Bunt's vice president, Lauer treasurer, and Phillips secretary. Doe, who had so skillfully handled the clinic's legal needs, was designated a life member of the Board of Trustees. A Celebration At 8 p.m. on February 26, 1921, 500 local members of the medical profession and many physicians from outside the city attended Cleveland Clinic's grand opening. This event was modestly noted in the Bulletin of the Academy of Medicine of Cleveland as follows. Clinic building opens. Doctors Frank Bunce, George Kreil, and W.E. Lauer and their associates Dr. H.G. Sloan, T.P. Shoup, Bernard Nichols, Thomas Jones, and Justin Waugh announce the removal of their offices from the Osborne Building to the Clinic Building, Euclid Avenue at East 93rd Street, effective March 1, 1921. Among those who had arrived for the ceremony from out of town were Dr. William Mayo of Rochester, Minnesota, who delivered the main address of the evening, Dr. Joseph Bloodgood of Baltimore, Maryland, and Dr. J.F. Baldwin of Columbus, Ohio. The program included talks by each of the founders and by Charles Howe, president of the Case School of Applied Science. The keynote speaker, Mayo, was, of course, one of the famous Mayo brothers, founders of Mayo Clinic. William and Charles Mayo were dear friends of Cleveland Clinic's founders. They first met in what Kreil called the Alley Cat Days of Surgery in Chicago, possibly in 1889, when he went to that city to present a paper at the Chicago Medical Society. Kreil was introduced to the Mayo brothers, by another brilliant young surgeon, Dr. Albert Oxner, who was the cousin of and mentor to Dr. Alton Oxner, founder of New Orleans' Oxner Clinic. Krile and the Mayo brothers were welcome at each other's homes. In 1890, as the brothers' group practice was beginning, William Mayo first invited Krile to visit him in Rochester, Minnesota. Krile later wrote, I stayed at his house when the water in the pitcher and bowl was very near freezing. The young Cryle family, in turn, put the baby in the linen closet and parked ourselves in the dressing room to make room for William Mayo whenever he visited Cleveland. Years later, Cryle and Charles Mayo journeyed across the United States and Europe to collect best practices from other medical centers. On one trip to the Western States, the pair had to crawl out of the broken windows of a car that had flipped over. The accident happened while the two famous doctors were being sped under police escort to the site of an emergency. Cryle especially enjoyed Charles Mayo's company on their occasional duck hunting expeditions, where Cryle recalled that Charles was at his most relaxed and expansive. Kreil and his co-founders were impressed with the not-for-profit, multi-specialty group practice pioneered by their buddies, so much so that they adopted it, with some modifications, as a model for Cleveland Clinic. In Kreil's speech at the dedication, he described the incorporation of Cleveland Clinic and outlined its purposes and aims. Modern health care was complex, he noted. Collaboration is necessary one doctor could no more take on the intricate problems of medicine by himself than he could building an automobile by himself. Kreil said Cleveland Clinic would make a permanent practice of devoting a goodly portion of its income to research, pledging that its founders and their successors would give no less than one-fourth of their net income to building up the organization's property and endowment. He memorably noted that we are considering not only our duty to the patient of today, but no less our duty to the patient of tomorrow. Regarding the cost of care, he stated his intention that the patient with no means and the patient with moderate means may have, at a cost he can afford, as complete an investigation as the patient with ample means. Kreil made it clear the clinic's purpose would also be educational with a schedule of daily conferences and lectures for approved young physicians and others who might be interested. The clinic's physicians were not there, he said, to compete with the private practitioner, but to supplement, to aid, and to cooperate with him. Nor was it there to compete with universities, but to cooperate in that field also. The result of such an organization, Kreil said, will be that the entire staff, the bacteriologist, the pathologist, the biochemist, the physicist, the physiologist, and radiologist, no less than the internist and the general surgeon, Each, we hope and believe, will maintain the spirit of collective work, and each of us will accept as our reward for work done his respective part in the contribution of the group, however small, to the comfort and usefulness and the prolongation of human life. Should the successors seek to convert it into an institution solely for profit or personal exploitations or otherwise materially alter the purpose for which it was organized, cryle said, the whole property shall be turned over to one of the institutions of learning or science of this city. In their remarks, Bunts, Lauer, and Phillips reinforced and reiterated cryle's sentiments. William Mayo's speech was entitled The Medical Profession and the Public, Its content was significant, and it contained many truths and ideas that are still worthy of consideration. Like Kryle, he addressed the growing complexity of health care and the inadequacy of the lone practitioner to comprehend it all. He noted how, in his father's era, the medical profession's success often depended on what he called stagecraft, that is, the impressive surroundings of the office and the doctor's top hat and frock coat. In modern times, facts had replaced the power of appearances. Mayo went on to discuss some of the fundamental political and professional aspects of medical care. He said, Properly considered, group medicine is not a financial arrangement except for minor details, but a scientific cooperation for the welfare of the sick. He warned against what he called state medicine, political control, mediocrity, and loss of professional ideas. With these instructive and challenging remarks, Mayo highlighted the fundamental aims of the founders of Cleveland Clinic, better care of the sick, investigation of their problems, and the further education of those who serve. On Sunday, February 27, 1921, the clinic held an open house for 1,500 visitors. On the following day, it opened to the public and 42 patients registered. There were 60 employees on the payroll in 1921, including 14 doctors, 4 nurses, a telephone operator, a night crew of 6 cleaning people, 22 clerical workers, art department staffers, and laboratory technicians. The new enterprise was entering a crowded field. There were more than two dozen hospital and healthcare care facilities in Cleveland at the time. Among all those medical organizations, the clinic stood out not only as a group practice, but also for its distinguished architecture. For that, and much more, the founders owed a great deal to Mayo Clinic. A Distinctive Design The architect of Cleveland Clinic's new building was Franklin Ellerby of Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 1912, Ellerby had been called upon by the Mayo brothers to design a building for their growing group practice in Rochester. The Mayo structure was so impressive that Cleveland Clinic's founders did not hesitate to hire Ellerby, too. The result was a four-story white-brick building with Italianate windows to harmonize with the elegant churches and mansions in the clinic's Euclid Avenue neighborhood. The interior of Ellerby's design was arranged around a large atrium with wicker chairs and potted ferns arrayed under a broad skylight. Kreil overcame Lauer's frugal reservations to make sure the builders used only the finest materials. Because it was a time of railroad strikes, equipment shortages, and potential hijackings, guards with rifles rode atop the railroad cars to ensure the goods got to Cleveland safely. The public accepted Cleveland Clinic so enthusiastically that it soon became apparent to the founders that they needed their own hospital, even though the staff continued to have privileges at Lakeside, St. Vincent Charity, Mount Sinai, and elsewhere. Criall had agreed with the trustees of Lakeside that he would retire as professor of surgery at Western Reserve in 1924, and Lauer had consented to a similar agreement with the trustees of Mount Sinai. Considering the prevailing attitude toward group practice and the corporate practice of medicine, there was ample cause for concern about whether the hospitals would continue to make available a sufficient number of beds for patients of the staff of the new clinic. In the face of the all-too-real prospect of being frozen out of hospital beds, Cleveland Clinic purchased two old houses on East 93rd Street just north of Carnegie Avenue. These dwellings, with their broad front porches, were converted into a 53-bed hospital called the Oxley Homes, named for Emma Oxley, the highly competent English nurse who was put in charge. In 1928, Lauer described the fortuitously swift acquisition of Oxley Homes as follows. Dr. Cryle suggested one day if we could get two houses near together on 93rd Street, not too far from the clinic, we could fix them up and use them for a temporary hospital. The suggestion was made at noon. At 2 p.m., a patient of Lauer's, a real estate agent, came in to see him professionally. After dispensing with the professional visit, Lauer incidentally asked if she knew of any property on 93rd Street which might be bought or leased preferably the latter, as we had no money. She said she would find out. She returned in an hour, reporting that two maiden ladies down the street had two houses they would be glad to lease as they wanted to go to California to live. Lauer gave the agent a $100 to go and close the deal. About 5 p.m. of the same day, Dr. Lauer asked Dr. Cryle about the property he thought he should have. He replied, Two houses near together on 93rd Street. Lauer said, I have them. Kreil said, The hell you have? Thus closed the second land deal on 93rd Street and the first step in the formation of a hospital. A third house, therapy house, was used for radiation therapy and a fourth for serving luncheons to the medical staff. A fifth house was used by Dr. Henry John to treat diabetes. Not easy in those days, given that insulin had just been discovered and reactions to it were not yet well understood. This house went on to become notable for a patient who was treated there. A Young Pioneer When four-year-old orphan Madeleine Bebout fell into a diabetic coma in 1922, John was able to save her life using insulin, a remarkable new drug. During Madeleine’s treatment and recovery, the clinic became more than a medical provider for her. It became her home. Informally adopted by John and clinic nurses, Madeleine lived for several years in the diabetic home on 93rd Street. In 1926, Madeleine told the Cleveland Press that she had three mothers nurses myra castle jane swanson and elizabeth burkey madeline's life at the clinic offered a unique extracurricular education by observing the nurses and doctors around her madeline learned about diabetes thyroid surgery and appendicitis ailments she treated in her dolls At age eight, she even had her own nurse's uniform, just like her mother's, and would reassure patients before operations. The clinic took the place of her parents, paying for her upbringing and sending her to Laurel School. Madeleine's case is as medically significant as it is heartwarming. She was one of the first children in the area to be treated with insulin. Just a few years earlier, she would have died quickly. Instead, insulin and clinic caregivers allowed her to live well into her fifties. The clinic's first hospital administrator and director of nursing was Emma Oxley, the superintendent of Oxley Homes. At first, Oxley Homes was considered to be essentially a nursing home. Soon, however, an operating room for major operations was installed. This presented difficulties because there were no elevators in the buildings. Orderlies, nurses, and doctors had to carry patients up and down the stairs of the old houses. In the meantime, plans were made to build a modern 184-bed hospital on East 90th Street. Once again the architects Ellerbe and Company were called upon to design the building, which had the distinction of being the first hospital anywhere to have a bathroom in each patient room. The benefits of this were threefold. The patient had a better experience. Nurses didn't have to commit valuable time to walking patients down a hallway to a communal facility, and if the building didn't work out as a hospital, it could easily be converted to apartments. The new hospital opened June 14, 1924, with Charlotte Dunning as superintendent. The seventh floor contained operating rooms, living quarters for several residents, and anatomic and clinical pathology laboratories. Although 237 beds were now available between Oxley Homes and the new hospital, the demand for beds continued to exceed the supply. Two years later, two floors of the Bolton Square Hotel, located one block west on Carnegie Avenue, were equipped for the care of 40 medical patients. Gertrude Hills was the first administrator hired for the new hospital. In her position as manager of offices, she was responsible for hiring employees, managing banking and payroll, admitting patients, and handling other business matters as needed. She was human resources, operations, finance, and admissions all rolled into one. There were 75 nurses to handle all these beds, including 7 head nurses, 42 general-duty nurses, and 4 operating room nurses. Graduate nurses, assisted by orderlies and ward maids, were responsible for providing all direct patient care. With the successful completion of the hospital building in 1924, the Association Building Company had fulfilled its useful life. It had provided the founders with the legal and financial means to construct both the clinic and hospital buildings. All of its interests were merged into the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Cramped Quarters The clinic's experience with hospital beds can be summarized in one phrase, too few and too late. By 1928, the shortage was again acute, and construction began on an eastward extension of the hospital to 93rd Street to provide a total of 275 beds, excluding Oxley Homes and the hotel rooms. Increasing need for supplementary services made it necessary to move the machine shop to a penthouse on the roof and to construct a power plant, laundry, and ice plant. Parking became increasingly problematic, and a number of nearby houses were bought and raised for parking spaces. Lauer wrote, The purchase of these houses created a land boom on 93rd Street between Euclid and Carnegie Avenue, and no other property was for sale at the prices paid for the parcels already purchased. When we decided to build a hospital unit, we had an agent buy land on East 90th Street, ostensibly for garage purposes. We succeeded in getting enough land on East 90th Street for the first unit of the Cleveland Clinic Hospital. From then on, trading in land became an interesting game of chess for the clinic and the property owners on East 93rd Street between Euclid and Carnegie. The walls between clinical and non-clinical personnel were not especially rigid in those early days. The career of Amy Rowland is a good example. Rowland went to work for Kryle in 1914 as his general right hand in and out of the operating room and laboratory. The 26-year-old Mount Holyoke graduate not only wrote up and edited Krile's research, but also assisted in the lab. She traveled to France with Krile in 1915 and again in 1917, sharing the rigors of war alongside the doctors and nurses of the Lakeside Unit and possibly helping with patient care. She was a central figure in the early administration of the clinic, all while continuing to assist Crile's research and lending a hand with inpatient care. Kryle's son, who grew up with Roland as a near member of the household, described her as a brilliant writer, editor, and something of a feminist. Rowland's legacy includes writing the first book-length history of the clinic, called simply The Cleveland Clinic Foundation published in 1938. The book abundantly displays the keen eye, good judgment, and temperamental equanimity that made Rowland an invaluable part of the clinic's administrative team. In addition to her medical work, Rowland helped start the Women's City Club of Cleveland and served as its director and president. She was a founder of the Women's Council for the Promotion of Peace, a founder, officer, and trustee of the Cleveland Girls' Council and trustee of Women's Hospital. She was awarded an Honorary Master of Science degree from Mount Holyoke in 1921. The clinic's small but growing group of doctors and support personnel was a close unit. The annual picnic and dinner were eagerly anticipated. Their esprit de corps can be seen in posters, programs, and photographs in the archives. The early caregivers had parties and theatricals, played music together, and gently teased the founders in well-drawn caricatures. By 1928, the biophysics laboratory space had become inadequate because of the expansion of research, and a narrow, eight-story research building was constructed between the hospital and the clinic a founder passes in that same year bunts who had appeared to be in good health and had been carrying on his practice as usual died suddenly of a heart attack the event shocked and saddened all who knew him at a special meeting the board of trustees paid tribute to the late partner saying in dr bunts were united qualities and elements unto a character of the noblest type Richly endowed in intellect, he was no less rich in the treasures of the heart. He graciously gave happiness to others, as well as gratefully received happiness from them. He loved people, and was loved as very few men are by the multitudes. Fortunately, there was a young surgeon already on staff whom Bunts had taught in medical school and residency, and who now stood ready to take over his practice. This was Dr. Thomas Jones, who was destined to become one of the most brilliant technical surgeons of his time. Jones, or Tommy, as everyone but his surgical fellows called him, was a complex man, a great surgeon, and an unforgettable character, according to Dr. William Proudfit, a former fellow. Another former trainee, Dr. Gardiner Meads, recalled, He was a short, sharp-nosed, black-eyed man who could look right through you and whittle you down to size with very few words and a very sharp tongue. In response to continually rising demand for both outpatient and inpatient services, Cleveland Clinic increased the size of its professional staff and strengthened its existing departments. Using the Remains of the Building Fund, the organization purchased a gram of radium and installed a radium emanation plant, which made radon seeds for use in the treatment of cancer in the therapy house. It was the first such plant in the region. In 1922, an X-ray therapy unit of the highest available quality was purchased. Dr. U. V. Portman, a highly trained specialist in radiation therapy, was put in charge. Portman, in conjunction with Valentin Seitz, the brilliant engineer who headed the machine shop, and scientist Dr. Otto Glasser of the biophysics department, made the first dosimeter capable of accurately measuring the amount of radiation administered to a patient. Surgeon Jones had received special training in the use of radium and radon seeds and was well prepared to take advantage of the new radiation facilities. Glasser's dosimeter is the clinic's most important early example of technical innovation. Glasser was an early pioneer in radiology, radium therapy, and nuclear medicine. Born in Germany in 1895 and educated at the universities of Freiburg and Heidelberg, Glasser came to the U.S. in 1922 and joined the clinic the next year. After a brief stint teaching in New York, he returned to the clinic as head of the Department of Biophysics in 1927. That was the year Glasser invented the condenser dosimeter. Researchers realized the danger of radiation exposure shortly after they began using X-ray techniques for diagnostics and treatment. Overexposure was only detectable by observing skin reactions and other harmful effects. To avoid these harms, more precise measurement was needed. Glasser developed a means to measure the intensity of radiation, providing useful quantitative information. An early prototype of the device was constructed with the collaboration of engineer sites and tested by radiologist Portman. After the team published their results in the journal Radiology and took the device to the International Radiological Conference in Stockholm, it quickly became an international standard. Celebrity Patients The reputations of the clinic's founders attracted prominent people from many walks of life. Famous patients, eccentric patients, belligerent and delightful patients came and went, wrote Kreil. Among the early celebrity patients was Myron Herrick, two-time U.S. ambassador to France. A friend of Kryle, Herrick had been largely responsible for bringing the surgeon and his lakeside unit to France during World War I. While hospitalized in 1929, Herrick was visited by a man who was, at that time, the most famous human being in the world. Aviator Charles Lindbergh, who had made history with his solo flight across the Atlantic two years earlier. Fed up with attention by this time, Lindbergh had asked to make his visit incognito, and it was agreed that he could come and go without fuss. Unfortunately, Lauer, who had not been informed of this arrangement, exclaimed in delight upon seeing the famous flyer in the hallway. A crush of attention ensued. Lauer proudly insisted on showing Lindbergh off to the whole building before letting him go. During one memorable week in 1932, the clinic was host to both Horace Dodge of automobile fame and publisher William Randolph Hearst, who arrived with his mistress, actress Marion Davies. Although Hearst was still married, the controversial couple shared a suite at the Bolton Square Hotel. They brought servants and Davies' small dog. Hurst arranged it so that when his wife paid a visit, she would come up one elevator while Davies went down another. Cryle operated on the wealthy newspaper man for diverticulitis and followed it up with a hefty bill in accordance with the clinic's sliding-scale charge policy. Other well-known patients included James Packard, founder of the Packard Motor Car Company, who spent the last 18 months of his life at the clinic and died at the Bolton Square Hotel. Packard's generous donations were critical to the clinic's survival during the Great Depression that arrived a year after his passing. A James Packard Research Endowment Fund at the clinic continues to help fund urological studies. The first royal patient arrived in 1928. She was Fatima Siddiqua Bigam, mother and regent of Ghulam Moinuddin Khan Fatehuddin Khan Babi of the princely state of Manavadar in India. She arrived with her brother, Sheik Abdul Kalik and his two children, along with a representative of the British government, tutors and ladies-in-waiting, 16 people in all. The Queen was seriously ill with an exophthalmic goiter. A whole floor of the hospital was given over to her retinue. Cryle's surgery was successful. The Queen was described by Cryle's wife, Grace, as gentle and as enchanted by the Cryle's home Christmas tree as the Cryle's were by the fairy finery of her outfits. Training Future Doctors. Education was a clear priority for the founders, each of whom served on the clinical faculties of one or more Cleveland medical schools. The first medical resident was Dr. Charles Hartsock, who trained from June 1921 to June 1923, then joined the staff and served until 1961. The first surgical resident was Dr. William Johnson, who spent June 1921 to June 1922 at the clinic before returning for a second fellowship when the hospital opened. A fellowship committee was formed in 1924 to administer the program under the leadership of Dr. Robert Dinsmore. Between 1924 and 1937, more than 178 physicians spent periods of time in training at the clinic. Dr. William Proudfit recalled the casualness of training in those days. The entire formal educational experience when I was in training was a weekly lecture for fellows, all the fellows, regardless of specialty. This was held in the evening, and the same program was repeated annually an advantage for we learned what lectures to miss, how that contrasts with the present programs. An internist or a surgeon was expected to be competent in all subspecialties, except perhaps allergy for internists and neurosurgery and orthopedics for surgeons. The organizational status of education took some odd twists and turns in the early days. In the 1920s, Graduate medical education was a comparatively casual affair, not only at the clinic, but across all of American medicine. The system had no rules, rotations, or examinations. The title of resident and fellow were interchangeable, and those who bore them could jump from hospital to hospital from year to year as it suited them. Many hospitals didn't even pay residents or fellows. The clinic, however paid its residents, and paid them well. As a result, there was high demand for its limited slots. Residents and fellows had access to a medical library with illustrators and photographers to support teaching, lecturing, and the presentation of papers. Beginning in 1935, educational activities were carried out by the Bunce Educational Institute, or BEI. An independent entity reporting directly to the Board of Trustees. The BEI was supported by an early endowment and the proceeds of the Clinic Pharmacy, which was, and still is, incorporated as a for profit company. The BEI was established to maintain and conduct an institution for learning, for promoting education, and giving instruction in the art, science, and practice of medicine, surgery, anatomy hygiene, and allied or kindred sciences and subjects. There is no written record of why the BEI was set up as a standalone foundation, but there is speculation and hearsay. One theory says that the founders always wanted to start their own medical school and set up the BEI as a low-risk platform. According to another theory, the BEI was a means of legally acquiring body donations for medical study. Ohio law forbade cadaver study for all but educational institutions. Physicians at the clinic practiced many medical and surgical specialties at that time, which were not formalized into departments until after the Second World War. Urology and otolaryngology had been the only surgical specialties represented on opening day. General surgeons did all other operations. Urology had not, however... Formerly separated from general surgery, and urological surgeon Lauer performed almost as many thyroidectomies, cholecystectomies, and general surgeries as urologic procedures. The first otolaryngologist and later orthopedic, neurological, and ophthalmic surgeons strictly limited their practices to their specialties. Eventually, specialists in plastic surgery, gynecology, thoracic surgery, vascular surgery, and colorectal surgery were added to the staff. General surgery gradually became one of the smaller services, limited in scope to the treatment of diseases of the upper abdomen, thyroid, and breast, and to hernia repair. At the same time, surgery was becoming more and more specialized, requiring the formation of such departments as orthopedic surgery and neurological surgery. Endocrinology had been practiced from the earliest days alongside the rapidly advancing field of diabetes treatment. Thyroidectomies were always a high-volume procedure. But by 1927, the introduction of iodized salt, better diets, and radioactive iodine had begun reducing the need for this procedure. At the same time, there was rising demand for cancer surgery of the colon and rectum. Jones perfected a one-stage combined abdominoperineal resection procedure into a fine art He could perform three or four of these complex surgeries in a morning when it took most surgeons three or four hours to do one. He achieved a low mortality rate for the colon and rectum procedures, but the price was a high incidence of colostomy. Jones was a true general surgeon whose versatility encompassed not only abdominal surgery but also gynecology, varicose veins radical dissections of the neck and some thoracic surgery, as well as being a leading authority on the treatment of cancer. Surgeons came from across the country and around the world to observe his technique. Surgery continued to become more specialized, beyond the early departments like orthopedic surgery and neurological surgery the clinic took full advantage of the growing sophistication of medical and surgical techniques and of the prosperity that characterized the 1920s. Times were good, recalled Jones. Everyone seemed happy. By 1929, the clinic was prospering, with a growing hospital of 275 beds located in several buildings. The heart of the campus was the original building on Euclid Avenue, which had been dedicated in 1921. The facility was fireproof and classic in design, with its previously described three-story atrium for waiting patients and visitors covered by a 40-foot-wide skylight. Offices and examination rooms lined the perimeter of the two upper floors. Physicians received and examined patients in these rooms. If they needed further consultation, the doctors would personally escort them to the next appointment. Tragedy Strikes On Wednesday, May fifteenth, 1929, several hundred people were at the clinic on an ordinary bustling workday, unaware that by midday, over a span of only two hours, more than a hundred of them would lose their lives in one of the worst tragedies in U.S. hospital history. This disaster would bring the fledgling clinic to its knees and to the brink of extinction. The incident had far-reaching effects on the institution, its people, and the annals of hospital safety. On the morning of May 15th, the W.R. Roton Company, which was charged with servicing the clinic's steam system, received a memo requesting a service call. The memo found its way to Buffery Boggs, a 25-year-old steam fitter who later would tell investigators that he was an expert on sick heating systems. Service had been requested because shortly after 9 a.m., a leak was found in a high-pressure steam line that ran across a dark and poorly ventilated storage room in the basement of the clinic building. This room was estimated to contain more than 4,000 envelopes of X-ray film, housed in a combination of metal and wooden cabinets. The room was dimly illuminated by several exposed light bulbs hanging from the ceiling on long cords. Shortly after his arrival, Boggs found the leaking pipe but realized he did not have the tools to fix it. In addition, the pressure was too high to allow him to work. He requested that the superintendent shut off the steam and returned around 11 a.m. to perform the repair. He later told investigators that upon his return, he heard a hissing sound and was concerned, knowing that it should have taken only about 20 minutes for the steam pipe to cool down to the point that it would no longer hiss. After opening the door of the room, Boggs encountered clouds of a thick yellowish smoke, pouring from the area around the exposed pipe. After dashing into the hallway and grabbing a fire extinguisher, he returned and vainly tried to put out the fire. The fire only grew. Boggs was overcome with smoke, but was unable to exit via the stairwell because of the accumulation of toxic fumes. Making matters worse, the room was unventilated. Boggs and an assistant custodian tried to escape through a basement window, but were unable to loosen the window screen. It was at this time that the first of several explosions occurred, knocking both men through the window and into the window well, miraculously allowing them to scramble to safety. They ran to the fire station at Euclid Avenue and East 105th Street to report the fire, but by then everyone in the immediate vicinity knew the clinic had a major disaster on its hands. To fully appreciate the severity of that morning's events, it is necessary to understand the nature of the fire. In the early 1900s, X-rays were made on plates composed of a substance called nitrocellulose. By 1929, these plates were being replaced by a safer but more expensive compound based on acetate known as safety film. The reason for the change was that nitrocellulose is a highly volatile and potentially toxic substance. In the 19th century, it was used to fuse guns in the form of gun cotton but was abandoned because of its instability. Nitrocellulose ignition is particularly deadly because of its capacity to emit toxic oxides of nitrogen and carbon. Even trace amounts of these compounds can be deadly when inhaled. When nitrocellulose is slowly cooked, as in the case of the 1929 disaster, rather than being consumed by fire outright, it produces even higher concentrations of these toxic chemicals. Moreover, nitrocellulose has the capacity to burn in the absence of oxygen, even under water, which explains why Boggs was unable to douse the fire with his soda and alkali extinguisher. The occupants of the nearby research building and hospital experienced no problems. A fire door closed the underground tunnel connecting these buildings, confining the gas to the clinic building. The room where old films were stored was on the west side of the basement, next to the rear elevator shaft. Previous accounts have not adequately documented the panic, death, and destruction that occurred during the two hours between the explosion that ejected Boggs and the assistant custodian through the basement window and the extinguishing of the fire. The following account has been culled from a variety of sources, including eyewitness reports, survivors' depositions, the coroner's report, newspaper clippings, and scholarly reviews of the disaster. Underlying the epic nature of the tragedy is the fact that it was not a raging fire that caused so much loss of life. But rather the release of poisonous fumes resulting from the combustion of an estimated five thousand to ten thousand pounds of the stored nitrocellulose radiology film. As the fumes filled the file room they spread quickly throughout the clinic through a pipe tunnel which made a complete circuit of the basement and crawl space leading to nineteen vertical pipe ducts servicing every room in the clinic building. This system was the principal route for the distribution of gases throughout the building. The dark gas spread insidiously from around medicine cabinets, electrical outlets, and heating ducts, leaving black stains that were later described as black fingers of death. A report issued by the National Fire Protection Association in the wake of the disaster stated the most diabolical cunning could scarcely have devised an arrangement more surely calculated to spread death throughout the building. Alarms were telephoned in from several locations. The first was officially recorded at 11.30 a.m., and two others were recorded by 11.44. A fire company based on East 105th Street, just north of Euclid Avenue, was the first to respond. When they arrived... Most of the building was obscured by a dense, yellow-brown cloud. Two more alarms brought more firefighting equipment and rescue squads. Ladders were raised on each side of the building in an effort to reach and evacuate the people who appeared at the windows. About eight minutes after the arrival of the first fire company, An explosion blew out the skylights and parts of the ceiling of the fourth story, liberating an immense cloud of brown vapor and partially clearing the building of gas. Rescue work then began in earnest. Firemen and volunteers manned stretchers, removed people from the building, and helped them down the ladders. A rescue squad wearing gas masks tried to enter the front door on the north side, but was forced out of the building by the concentration of gases. Battalion Chief Michael Graham and members of Hook and Ladder Company No. 8 entered the building from the roof. Fire hoses were trained on the flaming gas visible through windows in the rear stair shaft and some of the basement windows. Since there was no building-wide explosion and no intense heat, many victims were presumed to have been caught completely by surprise. In the aftermath, some bodies were found sitting in chairs in examining rooms and waiting rooms, appearing as if they had merely gone to sleep. After a very short time, however, when it became clear that poison gas was spreading through the building, full panic ensued. In retrospect, it is clear that there was almost no way for the earliest victims to escape. The only possible exodus was from windows or the rooftop. Meanwhile, outside the clinic building, a full-scale rescue attempt was underway, mounted by the fire and police departments and hundreds of volunteers. Descriptions of the scene from firefighters, policemen, and clinic personnel are poignant. Several described trapped victims approaching windows darkened with thick fumes, only to fall back to their deaths as they were overcome by the poisonous gases. Dr. A.D. Rudeman, head of the Department of Ophthalmology, perched on the ledge of his office window and supported himself by holding a hot steam pipe inside the room. He ultimately made it to the ground safely. A few people jumped. Dr. Robert Dinsmore of the Department of Surgery broke his ankle leaping from a second-floor window on the east side of the building. Outside, an impromptu triage was carried out on the grass in front of the building. Victims of the disaster were sent to local hospitals in every type of vehicle. Management of the acutely ill was complicated. Many of the physicians on the scene, including Kreil, recognized the injuries as similar to those they had witnessed in World War I, in which poison gas caused a highly fatal lung edema. In later correspondence, Kreil wrote, I saw nothing in France so terrible. It was a crucible. Oxygen, atropine, and transfusions were immediately, but mostly futilely, applied. While some recovered from their fume exposure, a number of victims, who initially felt fine, returned to their homes only to succumb to delayed effects. For others, long-term care issues included heavy use of oxygen tents for weeks to months. So great was the need for oxygen that the local supply rapidly dwindled and additional tanks were flown in from nearby areas. Dr. Perry McCullough provided the following account. It was customary in those days for one of the staff or a fellow to accompany the patient to another department. I had gone to the front of the fourth floor with a lady and had introduced her to Dr. Ruderman, As I approached the balustrade, I heard a rumbling explosion and saw a high mushroom of dense, rust-colored, smoke-like gas arise from the center ventilator. I thought at first of bromine. It was clear to me that the masonry building could not burn and that the staff should help the people out and avoid panic. The ventilating system connected the basement with all the rooms individually so that within a minute or so they were filled with the poisonous smoke. The elevator near the front stair was stopped when someone in the powerhouse turned off the electricity and those in the crowded elevator died. The front stairway was crowded with frightened, choking people beginning to panic. Those near the bottom were shouting, Go back! You can't get out here! There's a fire down here! There were flames across the front doorway where the partially oxidized fumes met the oxygen of the open air. Most and perhaps all of the people who remained in the stairway died there. A few escaped through the skylight to die later, as did the neurosurgeon Dr. C.E. Locke, Jr. I left the stairway and went into the thick gas on the fourth floor. Those who reached an open window on the west were pretty well off, because the breeze was from that direction. I stumbled against a door on the east corridor, and Dr. Edward Scherrer, who was then a young staff member, pulled me in and helped me to hang my head out of the window, which did little good as the fumes were mushrooming out the window. With the help of firemen, we were able to get down one of the first ladders to be put up. After helping with what emergency care could be given in our own hospital, we searched for our friends, some of whom were alive and many dead at Mount Sinai Hospital. Many were located at the county morgue, others were visited at their homes. Dr. Scherer and I were admitted to the clinic hospital late that evening with shortness of breath, very rapid respirations, and cyanosis. After a few days in oxygen tents we were discharged, only to be readmitted about ten days after the disaster and were in oxygen tents again for most of six weeks. This relapse was the result of interstitial edema of the lungs, which occurred late in all of those who were badly gassed but survived the first few days. Among many of us who were most severely ill, courage and calmness seemed to play an important role in recovery. The lack of oxygen caused loss of judgment and encouraged restless activity, so that those who fought against instructions and the use of oxygen died. The courage and complete disregard of fear in the case of my roommate, Dr. Conrad Gilkison, was amazing. We both believed we were dying because everyone up to that time who had developed cyanotic nail beds had died, and we could see our blue nails plainly enough. At 1 or 2 a.m., both of us, unable to sleep, Gilkison said, Perry, if you're here in the morning and I'm not, get old Bennett to take me to the ball game. Bennett was the undertaker at the corner of East 90th and Euclid Avenue, a block from where we lay. Dr. Scherer, Dr. Gilkison, and I were finally able to return to work about November 15th. Recovery of pulmonary function was complete. The heroism of employees, firefighters, policemen, and many volunteers saved dozens of lives. Gladys Gibson was a telephone operator who was found dead, crumpled over her desk after the disaster. The cords on her switchboard were plugged into lines throughout the building. She had remained at her post in order to alert others in the building to the fire, when she could have easily escaped through a window only a few feet from her desk. Four other telephone employees, Gerald Mahaffey, Walton Turner, Benjamin Spieth, and James Runen, held damp handkerchiefs over their mouths as they returned again and again to the building to carry out victims. Clinic employee William Brownlow, who had been hand-picked by Kreil to head the Art and Photography Department, was taking the day off on May 15th. He had forgotten something, and while he was at the clinic to get it, the main explosion occurred. He stayed on to help rescue people and injured his hand and arm, smashing a window on the third floor to get people out to a ladder. During these rescue efforts, he breathed the fumes and died. There are many stories of the heroism of nurses on the day of the fire. Edith Morgan, who had served as a nurse in the Lakeside Unit during World War I, was working as a receptionist in the main waiting room when the explosion occurred. She tried to calm hysterical patients and help them get out of the building. She was trapped for a while in the north stairwell, but actually got out of the building from the second floor and walked to the hospital building, where she continued to help care for victims until she collapsed. Lillian Grundys, another nurse veteran of World War I, was gassed but did not check into the hospital. She was able to continue treating patients on the front lawn of the clinic and also in the hospital building. She recovered from the gas and worked at the institution until she retired. Blanche Young, another nurse, had been unwilling to leave her patient, although a colleague helping her with the patient left the building and came through unscathed. Young and her patient were found dead together some time later by a Catholic priest who was giving last rites to victims. Louise Swant Morton, another nurse, and her patient died just after reaching the open air. They had already breathed the fumes, and it was too late to save them. Aside from employees, there are numerous stories of rescue workers who performed heroically that day. Firemen from Station No. 8, just north of Euclid Avenue on 105th Street, who had been among the first group of rescuers to arrive, saved many lives. George Jusco, Mike Graham, Andrew Hamrocky, Pete Rogers, Patty O'Brien, John Walsh, Johnny Gerson, and Vani Chaka were among those credited with successful rescue efforts. Firefighters from all over the city responded to the alarm. Many undoubtedly put themselves in harm's way by chopping a hole in the roof to rescue victims. Gas escaped via the hole through which the firefighters were trying to lower themselves into the building. Miraculously, none of the rescuers was mortally injured by the toxic fumes. Other firefighters attempted rescues using ladders to the windows on the upper floors and carried many employees and visitors from the narrow window ledges to safety. Finally, there is a legendary story about a young policeman of uncertain identity who arrived at the clinic just after the explosion. He made his way through the darkened halls countless times, ultimately carrying out twenty-one victims. Although some of the victims succumbed to the poisonous gas they had inhaled, many others were saved. Perhaps the greatest hero of that day, and those that followed, was Krile. At the time of the fire, he was operating in a different building, and Lauer was out of town. As soon as he could leave his patient, Cryle rushed to the scene, but he could only guess what was happening in the building. A photo of Cryle gives stark testimony to the shock and pain that he was feeling. Historian John Stark Bellamy III has noted, Dr. Cryle himself was at his best throughout the disaster, a veritable battlefield general who tirelessly marshaled resources to heal the wounded and console the grieving. After examining several victims, Krile concluded that they had been intoxicated by poison gas and ordered transfusions, which he knew to be effective in carbon monoxide poisoning. But when he failed to see improvement, he feared something far more complex and deadly. Krile personally consulted with Major General Gilchrist, chief of the Chemical Warfare Service for the U.S. Army. A number of non-clinic physicians came to the hospital and spent many hours assisting members of the clinic's staff with their overwhelming task. Many survivors were cyanotic and short of breath, and it rapidly became evident that the problem was toxic gas inhalation. Respiration became more difficult, cyanosis increased, and severe pulmonary edema developed. Fluid caused by gas-induced irritation of the airways filled the pulmonary alveoli. Many of these persons, including neurosurgeon Locke and his resident Edgar Hunter, died in two or three hours. Some died later that afternoon or that night, among them Brownlow, the artist mentioned previously, and Dr. John Phillips, one of the clinic's founders and head of the medical department. Phillips had been working on the third floor of the clinic building when the blaze erupted. He quickly escaped by leaping from the third floor into a fire net, but not before inhaling a significant amount of the poisonous gas. He apparently was unaware of the gravity of his toxic exposure, but was feeling tired and returned to his home in Wade Park Manor Apartment Hotel as a precaution. A few hours later, attendants there called for oxygen, and Cryle, his former teacher and intimate associate, hurried to the manor to attend to him. In personal correspondence, Dr. Henry John, one of the original members of the clinic's staff, described the events during Phillips's last hours. John reported having been called by Cryle for assistance. He hurried to Phillips's apartment, where he found Crile and his friend, Dr. Harvey Cushing, who had rushed to the scene of the disaster from Boston that day, attending the gravely ill Phillips. John said that Phillips looked at him and he knew what the score was. We did not say a word. He died at about 8.30 p.m. He was only 50 years old and the loss of such a talented physician and leader was a particularly sad event for the clinic and for Cleveland's medical community. The next day, Cryle asked his first assistant, Dr. Alexander Bunce, the son of clinic co-founder Dr. Frank Bunce, to take Cushing around the hospital to see those with any possible neurologic injuries. A few days later, Cryle wrote to all surviving family members who could be identified. For example, in a letter to a Barberton, Ohio man, dated May 23, 1929, he wrote, Because of our sad lack of definite information regarding the family connections of Mr. and Mrs. Carl Long, who lost their lives in the Cleveland Clinic disaster, we are asking you to extend to his family our deepest sympathy in their great sorrow. Only our duty to the surviving has kept us from giving them more promptly this assurance that we sorrow with them. Dealing with the Aftermath In the days, weeks, and months after the disaster, the challenges for the surviving founders were immense these men were now responsible for the human and financial losses, the challenges of rebuilding, corresponding with the throngs of the sympathetic, the angry, and the grieving, and dealing with the legal morass that followed, all while returning to work. It is truly astounding that by Friday of the same week, Krile was back in the operating room doing what he did best. His wife, Grace, wrote in his biography that on the very evening of the fire, he told her, This has come to us, and we must build something constructive out of it. Grief would be defeat. The only way we can meet it is not to live with it. The investigations conducted by the Chemical Warfare Service determined the nature of the gases produced by the burning or decomposition of nitrocellulose films carbon monoxide and nitrous fumes, nitric oxide, nitrogen dioxide, and dinitrogen tetroxide. Carbon monoxide, breathed in high concentrations, causes almost instant death. Nitrous fumes, which accounted for most of the brownish gases, became nitric acid on contact with moisture in the lungs. This led to acute rupture of the alveolar walls, pulmonary congestion, and edema. The Cleveland Clinic disaster contributed to the worldwide adoption of revised safety codes for storing films and led to the mandatory use of safety film that would not explode. Later, in June of that year, the Board of Trustees eulogized the victims of the fire in a booklet, In Memoriam, which included the following. The integrity of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation could receive no more severe test than that of the recent disaster. Each member of the medical staff, as well as every employee in every department, has faithfully carried on his or her own task, knowing that the clinic was not destroyed, but rather that from the ruins will rise an even better institution which will be dedicated as a sacred memorial to the dead. Cushing later wrote in his autobiography, A lot of heroism on the part of everyone for a few hours and the people getting blue and dropping dead. One hundred and twenty at the last report. I came out last night to see if I could be of any comfort or use. Krile has taken it with amazing equanimity, externally at least. In addition to Phillips and Locke, eight other physicians, including several visiting physicians, died that day. After the disaster, many problems confronted Kreil and Lauer, the two remaining founders. Initially, there was a profound outpouring of sympathy from around the world. More than $30,000 in contributions were sent in sympathy. These were later all repaid by the founders, including interest. Soon, however, sympathy turned to recrimination. Questions arose as to what conditions prevailed that may have contributed to this disaster. Lita Perkins, Executive Secretary to the Founders and Board of Trustees, in whose photographic memory existed most of the records of the Foundation, had died. The clinic building, although still structurally sound, could not be used. The interior was badly damaged, brownish stains were present everywhere, and there was a rumor that lethal fumes were still escaping. A stone house that stood directly across Euclid Avenue from the clinic, vacant at the time, had been used as a dormitory for the girls of Laurel School. This house was made available to the clinic by Mrs. Lyman, headmistress of the school and a lifelong friend of Krile. The house was transformed into a temporary clinic, For four days after the disaster, the staff and personnel of the clinic worked unceasingly, aided by carpenters and movers and by a committee of civic leaders headed by Samuel Mather and Roger Hyatt. Desks, chairs, tables, lamps, X-ray equipment, files, records, and all other necessities were carried across Euclid Avenue and placed on all three floors of the loaned house. Telephone and power lines were installed. On Monday morning, May twentieth, 1929, just five days after the disaster, the building was opened for the examination and treatment of patients. Liability insurance coverage for such carnage was inadequate, but it did provide $8,000 per person plus funeral or hospital expenses. State industrial insurance gave what Kreil termed cold comfort to the clinic personnel the medical staff however took on the task of paying the families of the staff members who died full salary for the first six months and half salary for the next six the founders suffered no personal liability because the foundation which owned everything was a non-profit corporation of which the founders were salaried employees Expressions of sympathy and offers of financial assistance were received from many Clevelanders, as well as from colleagues and patients as far away as India, China, and Australia. Cryle said, When Lauer and I found we still possessed the confidence of the public, of our own staff, and of the members of our institution, we knew we could finance our own way. So, after holding these gifts for a few months of security, we returned them all with their accumulated interest. After operating in the Laurel School quarters throughout the summer of 1929, the clinic transferred its equipment and functions in September to the newly completed addition to the hospital, which had just been extended to East 93rd Street. The rooms on several floors were arranged and equipped as examining rooms for outpatients. For the next two years, the institution's work was carried out here. Although the quarters were cramped, patients continued to come in increasing numbers. How did it happen? The cause of the disaster was sought by no fewer than a dozen investigating agencies, including the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office, the City of Cleveland, the Cleveland Fire Department, the Ohio Inspection Bureau, the National Fire Protection Association, the National Board of Fire Underwriters, and the Chemical Warfare Service of the Army. Three theories were advanced to explain the combustion that produced the nitrocellulose fumes, but even to this day, no conclusive evidence exists for any of them. One potential explanation was that the exposed steam pipe led to overheating and cooking of the films. This theory was largely put to rest by a series of detailed experiments conducted by the Chemical Warfare Service that attempted to reproduce the exact events of that fateful morning. This required constructing a test chamber with all the requisite materials, including nitrocellulose film, steam pipes under varying pressures and temperatures, electric light bulbs, cigarettes, and other materials. They then painstakingly recreated the possible conditions in the file room. In a lengthy formal report, they described in great detail the results of these experimental test conditions. They first tested the danger of a high-pressure steam pipe by varying the degrees of its insulation and then exposing it to X-ray films at varying distances both with and without their envelopes. They found that no ignition took place unless the films were in direct contact with an exposed steam pipe. A second theory was that a carelessly discarded cigarette ignited the blaze. While this would have been sufficient to trigger a nitrocellulose fire, everyone, including the steam fitter, Buffery Boggs, adamantly denied that he was smoking that morning. Perhaps the most intriguing theory was that an exposed light bulb may have been carelessly placed directly on an unprotected X-ray film. The Chemical Warfare Service tests demonstrated that a bare light bulb had the potential to ignite nitrocellulose film, but here the story becomes even more dramatic. In the days and weeks following the fire, an inquest was held, and the events were covered by the local newspapers. Witnesses at the inquest expressed strong differences of opinion as to whether such an exposed light bulb actually existed. But the star witness, head file room clerk Enid Critcher, testified that such a light bulb had been installed at her request because the room was too dim for her to locate requested films. In the final analysis, no single cause was ever determined, and multiple factors may have led to the fateful events of May 15, 1929. One of the most remarkable aspects of the disaster was the aftermath of community volunteerism that led to the speedy recovery of the clinic's operations. According to Cleveland newspaper reports, a committee of 36 community leaders formed spontaneously within 24 hours after the disaster and assumed responsibility for establishing temporary quarters for the organization. Leading this community effort was Samuel Mather, whom the Cleveland News described as the city's greatest philanthropist. In addition, Roger Hyatt of the Union Trust Company represented the committee on the scene and was described as having taken command. The community leaders who were part of this committee actually worked at the scene while volunteers from around the area, including skilled tradesmen such as plumbers, carpenters, and electricians, began the renovation. Office fittings, including desks, typewriters, filing cabinets, and other equipment, poured into the temporary facility, allowing it to open for patient care by May 20th. A clinic nurse placed a bowl containing two goldfish in the sunshine of a front room as an expression of hope and spirit on behalf of all those involved, for these two goldfish survived the disaster while so many victims perished. Meanwhile... Across the street, the ravaged clinic building was fenced off to protect it from vandalism. The founders pondered the fate of the facility. Some advised raising the building, fearing that people would always associate it with the disaster, while others felt that it needed to be salvaged since it was not extensively damaged by fire. Kreil said, They will talk for a while, and then when they forget it, we will start again to use the building. The original clinic building stands to this day on Euclid Avenue. It was to be expected that, in the wake of such a disaster, multiple lawsuits would be filed against the clinic and its leadership. Legally, the founders were not personally responsible for these damages, but the organization faced massive financial problems. It was protected by only $30,000 in liability insurance, and the claims far exceeded that figure. By 1932, these claims were all settled for $167,000. The significance of the disaster was felt not only locally, but also nationally and internationally. The event was covered in newspapers on virtually every continent. One article stated that on the day of the fire, the city of Cleveland received more long-distance phone calls than on any previous day in its history. For the U.S. hospital community, this was a turning point in radiographic film use and storage. In retrospect, it is unfortunate that by the time of the disaster, nitrocellulose fumes from burning X-ray films had already resulted in fatalities, although on a small scale, in several community hospitals. Following the Cleveland Clinic disaster, calls were immediately issued by numerous agencies for an end to the use of nitrocellulose X-ray film and for vastly improved standards of storage, including metal cabinetry, adequate ventilation, and even location external to a hospital site. The disaster was so far-reaching that one member of Congress said that the horrors of poison gas as witnessed in the Cleveland Clinic fire should encourage the United States to adopt the newly discussed guidelines at the Geneva Convention. Many tried to make sense of this horrible tragedy, but none was forthcoming. Perhaps Army Major General Gilchrist said it best. The people who died here must be regarded as sacrifices to experience rather than as victims of negligence.